and amen. Well, good morning, everyone. If you would, take a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. And I look out and see a lot of children and a lot of people who are young at heart as well. I wonder if you'll indulge me in something. This is one of those experiments I probably should have thought of ahead of time, but I didn't until just now. I was, when we were taking communion, I was reminded that my very first communion was when I was nine years old. That's how old I was when I decided to follow Jesus. And I was baptized. And uh, there's no way I could have known in the decades that followed all the different places Jesus would lead me. But I knew something at nine years old that, that is still true. And that is that Jesus, Jesus was my hero. And, and I can tell you confidently, 40 years later, he still is. And I get to tell you why today. So uh, for all of you who are children, would you help me? Because uh, Jesus gave me the ability to teach and the privilege of uh, reading the scripture and teaching you what it means. But he didn't give me the ability to lead a song. <laughs> and so I need your help. And would all of you help me? I'd like to sing, Jesus Loves Me. But I need your help. And so if I just start it, will you all just take over? And let's sing that song together. Uh, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes. Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Well, that's absolutely true, and I hope you know how much you mean to Jesus. Uh, Tony is not able to be with us the next few weeks, and so uh, several of us will be helping out with giving the sermon and going through passages. But for the next few weeks, I thought what we we would do is go through a series. And the title of that series is, When Jesus Asks You, Who Do You Say That I Am? And though we could pick lots of people from Scripture and and uh, look at who they said Jesus was and is, I've decided to pick four people. Today, we'll listen to Peter's answer. Next week, we'll listen to Martha's answer. The week after that, uh, we'll listen to John's answer to that question. And then finally, we'll ask the Apostle Paul. Uh, who does he say that Jesus is? And I hope you'll, you'll be here, and I hope you'll go through each of these passages together. But if I were to ask you that, if I were to ask, who do you say that Jesus is, what would be your answer? Well, there are lots of heroes to choose from in our day and time. Let's begin today with this question. Uh, time magazine, back in 1927, started choosing the person of the year. So every year they would name who they uh, believed, or who the editorial board believed, was the most influential person of that year. Now, it hasn't always been a good person, or so they're not picking who was the best or the most morally upstanding person. Uh, in some of those years, they've picked uh, people like Hitler and Stalin, you know, because of the influence that those individuals had. Uh, but then there are also uh, people who are good. 
And there are, are many people who are on that list since 1927 who have had a powerful influence in some way. Uh, all the presidents in the recent years have been on that list. But here's the question for you this morning. Pretend that you are on the editorial board for Time magazine, and you're asked this question. Who is the most influential human being alive today? Who comes to mind? I'm going to pause because I really want you to, to think for a moment. Who is the most influential human being alive today that comes to mind when you hear that question? Now, here's another question. For how many of you, when you think of the most influential human beings who are alive today, for how many of you did Jesus of Nazareth come to mind? And if not, pause for a minute to ask why. We're sitting in church, (laughs) you would think, that here, of all places, if someone were to ask us who is the most influential human being alive today, we would say, it's Jesus. Well, perhaps you agree with that. We sang, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Surely that song doesn't just apply inside these walls. Perhaps you forgot that he is fully human. We tend to recognize his deity. He is fully God. Did we forget that he is also the most perfect human being? We just took communion and celebrated and remembered what he laid down for us, how he laid down his life for our sins. Did we forget that he did not stay dead? Did we forget that he is the most influential human being alive today? He is the living son of God. Well, what would it be like to ask, who is this Jesus? If it's true that Jesus Christ is the most influential human being alive today, who is that person? Now, in order to get to that question, we have to remove layers of embellishment over the last 2,000 years in which people have put their idea of who Jesus was on top of the real Jesus. But if we were able to peel back those layers and go back to the original people, those who followed Jesus first, and ask them, who do you say Jesus is? What would they say? That's what brings us to Matthew chapter 16. So if you would, open your Bible to Matthew 16, and I'll have the passage on the screen, but I want you to see it in your version. Matthew is the very first book in your New Testament, so it's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. And when you enter the New Testament, the very first of those four Gospels is the Gospel of Matthew. And there, if you'll turn to chapter 16, we have today's passage, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say that I am? Well, to understand the question, it's helpful to know the world in which the question is being asked. Jesus had uh, been born about 4 B.C., somewhere in that time period, depending on how you date. And it was about 30 years later, he pulled together these disciples, and these were the very first followers of Jesus. And he took them around what is now modern-day Israel. 
But in this part of the account, we find that Jesus took his disciples not to Jerusalem, which is that lower star on the map. Jerusalem was the center of worship for every Jewish person. But instead of taking the disciples there, Jesus took them about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get and still be in Israel. Far, far to the north is Caesarea Philippi. You'll see that star there on the top. This was an area that was not only far from the center of worship of God, this was an area that was considered pagan. They worshipped foreign gods. The Greeks had been here, and so there were many of the Greek gods that were worshipped. The Romans had come in and set up their temples to their gods. It was a place where you could worship any god on offer in that period of time. It was a big highway that went through, so it was a center of commerce. and was a very important, strategically an important place, but it was a mix of Romans and Greeks in this Hellenized world. And Jesus takes the disciples to this place where there's this clash of these worldviews. And then he asks them this question. They're approaching Caesarea Philippi or maybe even being on the outskirts of town. He asks them this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they get three answers. Now, these are Jewish people, so they go back into their uh their list of persons of the year, and they pull out the people that would be most influential in their time. And, and, and the first of those is John the Baptist. And they say, well, a lot of people say you're John the Baptist. Now, remember, John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin. And John was a strange man. He, even in that day and time, they'd say he was a bit odd. He wore a camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey, lived out in the wilderness. He uh, followed the teachings of a similar group called the Essenes, And he called people to follow God again. He didn't have any tolerance for the ways people had twisted the word of God and twisted the understanding of God. And so he, out in the wilderness, called people to repent, to be baptized, to follow Christ. And so people went to him. They considered him a prophet. But he was not a popular prophet among the powerful elite of the time. And Herod, the Tetrarch, one of the leaders of that time, got very angry with John because John called him out for his marriage. Herod had married at first a princess from a foreign country, uh, but he fell in love with his brother's wife, Philip's wife. And so he, he basically sent his princess back home and then illegally married his brother's wife. Well, John the Baptist had no tolerance for that, and he called it for what it was. He said, you cannot call yourself one of the kings of the Jews if you are going to behave that way. Herod didn't like that, so he arrested John, put him in prison. But he couldn't kill John because the people held him to be a prophet, and he was afraid of the people. So he kept John alive for some time. But then one night, in a moment of indiscretion, during a party, uh, he made a promise that he shouldn't have made. And he said to his daughter-in-law, or daughter, what would that be, stepdaughter, he said, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And she asked that John the Baptist be killed. And so Herod had to keep his word, and he killed John the Baptist. Well, it was about that time that Jesus shows up in Caesarea, uh, in uh, Capernaum, around the Sea of Galilee, and he's doing these incredible things, healing people, teaching, sounding like one of the prophets. And Herod thought, oh, no, that's John the Baptist come back from the grave. And, And the disciples pointed to that when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, a lot of people think you're John the Baptist who's come back to life. Other people say that you're Elijah. Now, Elijah was the superhero of prophets for the Jewish people at the time. You might remember Elijah was a prophet in the northern side 
of Israel after their civil war. And he is the one who is known for being a powerful person of prayer. He's the one who God used to uh, to show that he was the living God against the prophets of Baal. Remember, they set up the, the altar to Baal, and Elijah sort of made fun of them and said, pray to your God Baal and have him come down and light the altar. And of course, nothing happened. But when Elijah prayed, the altar that was built to God lit up in flames. It was totally consumed. And Elijah was a man who prayed. It didn't rain. And then when he prayed again, it did rain. And so he was known as God's prophet. In fact, he didn't die. God came down and in this whirlwind of a chariot takes him back to be with, be with God. And do you know the very, the very last lines of your Old Testament? This is in the prophet uh, Malachi. There at the very end, uh, those closing lines says that it's Elijah who will come back first and he will come before that great and awesome day of God. And so the Jewish people, including these disciples who followed Jesus, believed that Elijah would come first. And then after Elijah came, then their Messiah, their rescuer, their hero would would come. And so when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? They say, well, some people say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And other people say you're one of the other prophets. This would be the other prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah uh, or Ezekiel or even Daniel. And so they point to these other prophets who they had listened to. Every time they went to their synagogue, they would hear these prophets stated. So Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And they reached for the people that they knew, their heroes. And you can imagine today, if Jesus were to ask us, who do people say that I am? If you were to go out to coffee this week with just people in our community, with your neighbors, with the people with whom you work, and you were to ask, who do, who do people or what do people say Jesus is? Who do they say he is? What would be their answer? And you'd probably hear a collection of answers. Some may say, well, he's the savior of the world. He's God's son. Others would say, well, he, he's, a, he's a real person who is a Jewish peasant who lived in the first century. I can't say that he's alive today, but he was a great moral teacher. And it was his moral teaching that has just changed, especially the Western world. And so some people will say that he was a great moral teacher. Others may even go so far as to say he is the source of all kinds of evil. And they will say it is Jesus and his teaching that has led to all kinds of religious trauma and religious bigotry and all kinds of wars and crusades, and he's caused all kinds of evil. But you'll get that same collection of answers if you ask, who is Jesus today? Just like then. So you'll understand if Jesus follows up the question by saying, well, who do you say? that I am. Well, to understand the answer to that question, Peter's going to give us the answer first. It's important to know the world in which the disciples give the answer to who is Jesus really. So in this day and time, when Jesus asked this question, Peter and the other disciples would live with two different worldviews that were held in tension or sometimes in conflict. The first of those worldviews was set by the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire was the leading empire of the time. Uh, it was led by the, you know, the emperors. If you go back into your history, you'll remember Julius Caesar, uh, who uh, was reigning and actually transitioned the Roman leadership from their republic, and he's the first one who was their dictator. And he served as a dictator for a number of years, about five years, and then in 44, they, they killed him. The other senators literally stabbed him in the back. You remember A2 Brute? <laughs> they killed Julius Caesar. And that led to the Civil War. And at the end of that Civil War, 
a leader came to power in 27 BC named Augustus Caesar. This was Julius Caesar's nephew. And when he came to power, Augustus Caesar, and you you know about uh, Caesar Augustus because you read about him in Luke. You remember this is the Caesar who called the census of the entire Roman world so that uh, even Joseph and Mary had to make their way to Bethlehem, uh, and that's where Jesus is born. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because uh, Caesar Augustus declared that decree. And he declared that decree, he not realizing he was a part of one of the greatest uh, births in all of history. But do you know what Augustus called himself? When he came to power, he deified or he made Julius Caesar a god. He said Julius Caesar was divine. And so Augustus Caesar called himself, and you'll see the word here, Imperator Caesar Divi Filius Augustus. That's Latin. But do you know what the word Divi Filius means? It means son of God, son of the divine. And so the Caesars took on this title. He would pass it on to his uh, successor, Tiberius. In fact, Tiberius would have a coin, and you'll see uh, coins from this day and time, uh, had Tiberius, the uh, emperor, and around the edge of that coin, uh, around his image, you'll see this statement, Caesar, and it's kind of in shorthand there, but it says Caesar, divine of Augustus Filius, the son of divine Augustus. And then that would be passed to Domitian and Nero. And all of these emperors called themselves the son of the divine, the son of God. So in that day and time, if you were to ask anyone, Romans, Greeks, Egyptians, anyone in that world, who is the son of God? You know what they would say? They would say, that's Caesar. That's the emperor. That is the son of God. And they had good reason to think that. It seemed, or at least it appeared to them, that the the emperor had control of the whole world. It was the emperor who controlled reality. Just as examples, they would build these huge aqueducts and they would move water over hundreds of miles in order to build their cities. And they would move goods and services and uh, merchants would come from all over the world. They basically would pull together that Mediterranean world. They had control over who lived and who died. They could send their armies out marching over the known world and conquer uh, all these uh, different, different countries. And so the emperors were the ones who were in control. And so it was easy to see why they would say, well, it must be divine. Well, so that was one of Peter's, that he grew up in that worldview, grew up in Bethsaida, there around Galilee. But he also had in view an older story, the one that Peter would have heard from the time that he was a little boy going to synagogue. And it's a story that reached all the way back to creation when God made the heavens and the earth. But things went terribly wrong. And out of the people of the world who had turned to evil, God selected one group of people, the Hebrews, and out of Egypt, he rescued them. And so there's this story, you read about it in Exodus, of God rescuing his children, his people. And that became the guiding story. Because God not only rescued the people then, he would one day do it again by sending his anointed, his king, his leader, to rescue the people again. And so Peter would grow up almost every week hearing that story told that one day God is going to restore his people. Just as he brought them out of Egypt, just as they followed God, and just as God came from heaven into that tent, which was the tabernacle, just as God came and his presence was there with the people, one day he would come back and rescue them again. 
That story was told by many of the prophets. One of the most powerful stories is told by Daniel. You'll read this in Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel was taken in exile, went to Babylon. And while he was there, the king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And you remember Daniel was the one who was called to give the interpretation of this dream. It was a very strange dream. The king uh, had this dream of a statue, a very tall statue. The head was made of gold. The arms and chest were of silver, kind of that mid-portion of bronze. The thighs were made of iron. And then the feet were kind of this iron and clay mix. And Daniel tells everyone that the meaning of that dream is that there will be several empires, several kingdoms that will come. But at the end of all of that, there will be this great rock that comes from the sky. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed that this, this rock fell from the sky, it hit the base of this statue, and the statue crumbled and was destroyed. But that little rock swelled and grew and became a mountain that filled the whole earth, and it never went away. And Daniel says the meaning of that dream is this. The head of gold, that's Babylon, and that's going to be followed by another kingdom. We find out later that's the Medes and the Persians. And then it's followed by another empire, which we find out is the Greek empire. And that's followed by these other empires, the Seleucids, the uh, Egyptians kind of have their day. But then the Roman empire comes and the Roman empire is this mix of iron and clay. So you have a succession of all of these empires. And it was in that last empire that this, this rock from heaven comes and it hits the statue. That rock represents what the Jews thought was the anointed one, who Daniel will say later had the appearance of the son of man. And he comes from heaven and crushes these other empires and takes over the world. And so Peter grew up hearing that story. Every time he went to the synagogue, they would hear this story that God has rescued us from Egypt. He will rescue us again. And we wait for that day when this person will come who will be God's anointed one. And the word for anointed one was the word Messiah. And so they looked for the one named Messiah to come. Now that word Messiah, when translated into Greek, is the word Christos. And the the word Christos, of course, in English is translated as Christ. Whenever in your Bible you run across that word Christ in your New Testament, you're actually seeing the word Messiah. And that word Messiah means this one, this anointed one that would come from God who would make the world right again and whose kingdom would rise and never go away. So imagine Peter holding these two stories in tension when Jesus looks at them and says, so who do you say that I am? Maybe you understand that tension. You too live in a world where there's there's a struggle between different worldviews. It's not hard to be pulled into the worldviews of our current culture. When you see on the news people debating on how are we going to make a budget, you know, with with a trillion dollars, you would be right to think, well, it seems like politicians with power are the ones who control reality. When you hear about the Internet that you and I use every day being uh, shaped and fashioned into what will become the metaverse, the internet that's a living thing. You might be right to think it sounds like programmers and the internet will control reality. When you hear phrases like, let's just follow the science, you might think it sounds like that the science is, and those who do the science, instead of studying what is real and giving us a picture of what is real, 
Instead, science itself has become, or the people who do science are the ones who will control reality. And that's very much part of our worldview, held in tension. But you've come here today to hear a different story, one that is much older. It's the same one that Peter heard when he would go to synagogue in the morning. Uh, that at the beginning of time, God created the heavens and the earth, and the world went terribly wrong, but God did not leave it wrong. Instead, God will come back, and he will remake the world and make it right again. And part of that was God sending his Messiah, his Christ, to die, to be buried, to be raised from the dead, to die for your sins, to be raised for your life, and that one day he will come back and the whole world will be made right again. Well, well, if you understand the tension between those two, and even in your own life, how those two worldviews oftentimes clash or are held in tension, then you understand what it was like for those first disciples to be sitting around Jesus when Jesus looked at them and said, so who do you say that I am? Well, Peter would have thought back to the time that he was first called by Jesus. And Peter would remember when Jesus came up to the Sea of Galilee and said, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. You'll remember Jesus had provided this incredible catch of fish. And Peter, standing there knee-deep in fish, realizes he's standing in the presence of raw power and says, Lord, leave me, I'm a sinful man. But Jesus says, no, you follow me. I will make you a fisher of men. And Peter did follow him. And do you know what Peter saw? Peter, who grew up in this worldview of an empire where the leader was called the Son of God, an emperor who could build aqueducts and take water for over hundreds of miles, Peter saw Jesus take water and turn it into wine. He saw Jesus look out at a storm and say, peace be still, and take water that was tumultuous and make it perfectly calm, mega calm. He saw Jesus walk on water, and then he himself was able to walk on water. He saw this display of raw power. He saw Jesus heal people. In fact, Peter's mother-in-law was healed by Jesus. Sure, the emperor of Rome could decide who lived and who died, but Peter saw Jesus come, and he saw the one who could determine who would be raised back to life. And Peter was there when the little girl came back to life. Peter was there when Lazarus came hopping out of that tomb. Sure, the emperor could send a powerful military anywhere in the world marching to conquer. Peter watched as Jesus tells a paralyzed man to stand up and march out of the room. So Peter, holding those two worldviews in tension, is asked this question, who do you say that I am? And maybe you'll understand his answer when Simon Peter says, back to our text, you are the Messiah, the Son, don't miss this, of the living God. Do you see now how his answer is a way of saying, you are the real anointed one of God, you are As opposed to the emperor, you are the one who is truly in control of all reality because you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, good answer. (laughs) That's exactly right. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. In other words, you didn't hear that from another person, did you? But by my father who's in heaven. And then Jesus 
gives a little play on words. And he says, I say you are Peter. This is where Peter gets his name. But the word there in Greek is Petros. I say that you are Petros. And upon this rock, which is the word Petra, I will build my church. So Jesus says to Peter, your confession is correct. In fact, we'll call that confession a rock. And it's upon that confession that I will build my church. Now notice Jesus does not say, upon this confession, I will build a church building. Or upon this confession, I will build a organization with a hierarchical structure. The word church here, you have to remove the layers of meaning that we've added for 2,000 years and go back to, to the word that Jesus used. And the word that he used is the word assembly. And it doesn't mean assembly like this, that we've all just come together. It just means pulling together a group of people for a common purpose. And so when Jesus says, upon this confession, I will build my assembly, he means all the people who make this same confession, I will bring together into my family, into my assembly, into my group. And then he says, and the gates of Hades, for this group, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, the gates of Hades could mean many different things. Some, some of your texts may translate that as gates of hell, but that's not the right word here. He uses the, the word Hades. And the word in that day and time, the gates of Hades, referred to the gates into the underworld or the place people go when they die. And so the idea was that when you go through the gates into Hades, the gate's shut. You can't get out. It's not here a conflict between the church and evil. It's this idea that the gates of Hades will not be able to contain those who are a part of his assembly. And so that was Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says it's on that confession that I will build my assembly and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then Jesus gives a very strange command. Do you see what Jesus says? You would expect that if... Jesus's church is to be built on this confession, the very next thing would say, so go out there and tell everybody. (laughs) But instead, he says, don't tell anyone. Now, what it should say is, don't tell anyone yet, because eventually Jesus will, having died for our sins, have been buried, have been raised from the dead, he will allow the disciples to tell everybody this story. Let me show you where that occurs. In Acts chapter 2, The disciples are all gathered together in one house. There's 120 of them when God shows up again. God, just as he came into the tabernacle so many years before, he comes into that room in the presence of those disciples, and they're filled with God's presence, with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter comes out, and he gives this sermon to all the people who were in Jerusalem at the time. Here in Acts 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And so Peter gets to tell people about Jesus. And then he quotes from one of the Psalms where David talks about Jesus coming back from the dead and not being held by death. And he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David 
that he died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, in other words, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ and that he was not abandoned to, and here you see it again, Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And I bet what came to Peter's mind was what Jesus said, the gates of Hades would not prevail against him. This Jesus, God raised up, and we are all witnesses. And so Jesus, uh, Peter closes that by saying, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, and here you see the confection again. Who is Jesus? He is both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And of course, they end up saying, well, what do we do about that? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hear that clearly, because Peter says next, this promise is for you, meaning the people who first heard it, and for your children, and for all who are far off. Guess where you are in that sentence? Yeah. You're one of those who was far off. The promise is for you. Everyone whom the Lord our God, listen to this word, calls to himself. Everyone who's brought into the ecclesia or the church. And there you see it again. And so that promise is for you. When you are asked the question, who is Jesus? There are many different answers, many different possibilities. But for those of you who, like Peter, have seen what Christ is able to do, you have the ability, you have the right to become one of God's children, to repent, to change your mind, to be baptized, to follow him, and to receive his spirit, the same as those first disciples uh, did. Now, does that make a difference? Let me close with just a few examples to show you what this looks like. Uh, this week, uh, as I was preparing for today, I got a call from two friends, and I wanted to tell you about both of those. Uh, the first is Luxon Preville. Uh, Luxon is a young man I met when he was he was 11 years old in Haiti. Luxon is a Haitian that uh, we met on one of our trips down there years ago, back in the 90s, and he won everybody's hearts. He was raised by uh, several of the missionaries there. He was an orphan child. He ended up coming to the U.S., became an optometrist, married Erica, you'll see with his wife, uh, his wife Erica here. And uh, he now lives in Chattanooga and works as an optometrist there. But do you know what he did? Luxon is a follower of Christ. And he, along with a group of other young men who grew up in that same orphanage, went back and built a compound in northern Haiti. It's a compound they call Every Eye Will See Him. And, and that compound has an eye clinic where they do eye surgeries and help people see again. It has a medical clinic where they take care of people in that community. They bring in kids from the community and support the schools. They support the local churches. But it's a group of young Haitian boys who grew up and took seriously what it meant to follow Jesus. And uh, Luxon, this last week, is down in Haiti. And maybe you know of all the turmoil down there. They had the earthquake. It's been followed by, uh, you know, their president was killed. Gangs have taken over. People are being abducted and uh, held for ransom. They burned down the hospital there in northern Haiti. And Luxon went down to check on people. And I asked Luxon, do you feel safe? 
And he said, well, people are asking me all the time whether or not we are a target, meaning that compound. And he said, I always tell them in his Haitian accent, he'll say, of course we are a target, but the Lord is at our side and we cannot live in fear. I wonder if you were to ask Lukeson who he says the most influential human being alive today is. You know what he would say? He would say it is Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ. The other friend I heard from this week is Dr. Kent Brantley. You might remember uh, Dr. Brantley is a physician who started out in, at ACU, uh, Abilene Christian University, got a Bible degree, and then went on to become a physician, and uh, went on to become a medical missionary. In 2014, he was working as a medical missionary in Liberia, Western Africa, when do you remember before we had pandemics, we had what were called epidemics? <laughs> yeah. And there, this was the Ebola epidemic there in Western Africa. And he was on the front lines when Ebola hit. And, uh, and he stayed. When everybody else fled, he stayed to take care of the people who had Ebola. And he ended up contracting Ebola. Almost died from it. But there was a rescue mission that went in. They were able to give him some medicine. He flew back, was treated for a number of weeks at Emory University there in Atlanta, and he survived. And after that, spent a lot of time going around the country uh, advocating for work there in sub-Saharan Africa. Even got to meet with the president. In fact, there's a funny story here, because can you imagine the Secret Service having to determine if Kent Brantley can sit in the same room with you after he's had Ebola, (laughs) you know? And there was a big debate about whether or not they would be able to shake hands. But he said the president, you know, shook his hand, uh, knowing that it was safe after he had survived. Well, do you know what Dr. Brantley did after he recovered from Ebola? Several years later, uh, do you know what he did? He went back to Zambia. He took his wife, Amber, uh, you see there, and they went back to Zambia, and now he's working there as a medical missionary in Zambia. Sent me an email this week. They're coming back to the U.S. for a, a, number, of, a number of months. And it reminded me that when uh, Kent was still in the U.S. and he was traveling around after his experience, uh, I got to be there when he was speaking to a group of college students. And at the end of his sermon to these college students, he made this statement that was so powerful when he said, and then he ends with this promise, talking about Jesus, be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ died for us, and this changes everything. So Jesus has called us, and he is sending us out as ambassadors of the kingdom to make disciples. Did you see in the previous slide that Dr. Kent Brantley was named as Time Magazine's Person of the Year, 2014? But I wonder if you were to ask a person who was named as Time Magazine's Person of the Year, who is the most influential person, who is the most influential human being who is alive today? You know what Dr. Brantley would say? He would say it's Jesus. Jesus, the one who is the sovereign one in control of the entire universe, and the one who will come again, God's anointed, to make the world right again. And that's what drives them to do what they can to serve. Well, that's what other people say about Jesus. The question for today is the question now posed to you. What about you? Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? I'll leave you with that question. Many of you are still considering whether or not Jesus is worth putting your full weight on. Would you be opposed to looking at the data 
to reading through this whole book of Matthew, or pick Mark, or Luke, or John, any of those, and look at what Jesus was able to do. Some of you have investigated him, and you're ready to follow. And you say, what do I do? How do I, how do I sign up? Listen to Peter's answer. Repent. Be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus, and receive that same gift, the promise for you to receive his Holy Spirit. And you can do that today. The water's ready to be baptized. And then I hope for others of you who have followed Jesus for a long time, that today's message is sort of like pulling one of those albums uh, out of the lower uh, you know, cabinet and flipping through the pictures and remembering all the different times, through the good and the bad times, how much Jesus has walked with you and has been with you, the most influential human being who has ever lived, having an influence over your life. And may it be a reminder of why you chose in the first place to follow him. Well, as all these things ruminate and think, if you have a commitment or have a request for prayer, you can offer that uh, or bring it forward, and we will offer that to God on your behalf at this time. But let's think about this question that he asks us while we stand now and sing together.